Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 70. Um, continue on with the uh, uh, podcast a few ago, The Origins, origins of Early American Architecture. So let's, uh, let's pick that up. So, so the study of early American architecture has often been framed within the broader context of colonial American history, a story that is shaped by the push and pull of two forces. European inheritances, on the one hand, and the adaptation to local environments and developing social and economic conditions on the other. Some things did work, though, in the New World. Others did not. Colonists experimented with traditional British building practices and over time retained those elements that best suited their immediate circumstances. As the recent excavations inside the fort at Jamestown prove, they charted a separate course from mainstream English building practices from the beginning of settlements in the first decades of the 17th century. In a period when local customs and traditions were a vibrant force in shaping daily life in England, the formation of communities in the regions of the Mid-Atlantic stage, which suddenly brought together people from various backgrounds and places, ruptured many old patterns and histories. Unavoidably, though, much of the particular richness of their old provincial backgrounds was lost, but contact with other settlers provided a catalyst for forging a new regional culture. Climate and 3,000-mile-long supply line certainly worked against the simple replication of English ways, no matter what their regional origins may be. Builders had a plentiful supply of wood, but manufactured materials such as nails, paint, hardware, and glass, and these were costly. An unhealthy climate, where the mortality rate was appalling, even by 17th century standards, disrupted the formation of familiar patterns of domestic life in this rough-and-tumble frontier culture. These factors foster the growth of building practices based mainly on impermanent construction techniques. In contrast, the settlement of New England occurred in a more orderly fashion, causing fewer impediments to the replication of traditional patterns of English life. Extended families and Members of entire communities in East Anglia, for example, immigrated together and were able to reestablish something of the social structure of their old world habitations much more readily in stony New England. As the Fairbanks house suggests, carpenters in the northern colonies almost immediately took up the construction of timber frame dwellings in a manner they had known in East Anglia. Yet even in New England, the allure of unlimited timber supplies began to change the way some craftsmen fashioned houses. By the second half of the 17th century, sawmills produced thousands upon thousands of board feet of lumber for sheathing walls and roofs, eliminating the use of smaller intermediate studs in some cases or promoting the use of multiple common purlins rather than common rafters and others. Yet, New England colonists never experimented outside the structural box frame, wedded to the to use, for example, of the blind dovetail wall plate and tie beam assembly. 
one of the telltale signs of English timber framing, according to Richard Harris. Building tradesmen who came ashore in the Mid-Atlantic states had no such familiar housing market awaiting their skills. In contrast to New England, the southern colonies were a mixing bowl well supplied with young men looking for adventure or a way out of dismal prospects in London and other cities and villages throughout England. They survived a year of seasoning. Most found back-breaking labor in tobacco fields and a place to sleep in dwellings that must have resembled communal bunkhouses. The sound of gnawing termites and mice eating away at the very foundations of their houses must have disturbed the golden dreams of many New World adventurers. Although a handful of 17th century buildings resembled in plan, construction, and scale the houses of minor gentry and prosperous farmers in some parts of England, most farmhouses erected by the this dispersed agricultural society varied significantly from standard English patterns. So by the middle of the century, immigrants to the southern colonies acknowledged houses, the difference between well-framed and ill-framed. English houses with stout posts, beams, and braces fastened with mortise and tenon and dovetail joints, and a cheaper and far more prevalent form of riven clabbered carpentry. The lower part of this hewn and riven frame was composed of posts and studs that sat two or three feet in the ground. The ghosts of these framing members are, the, are what archaeologists stumble upon at almost every 17th century site they excavate. A covering of four or five foot long riven clabbered boards provided structural rigidity for the wall and roof frames. This relatively light and simplified structural system eliminated much of the labor-intensive and complicated jointry of traditional English framing. Colonists rarely considered these buildings, which they referred to tellingly as Virginia houses, as anything more than inferior but necessary structures. The building practice suited the impertinent nature of the plantation society. Along with the adoption of earth-fast construction methods that soon stood outside the <clears throat> mainstream of traditional English, English building practices, colonists restructured the manner in which they lived, worked, and even entertained. For much of the 17th century, they experimented with many contemporary English house types, juggling elements to fit the needs of a plantation culture increasingly dependent upon servant and slave labor for their size. Through passage and lobby entrance houses were among the various familiar forms that were replicated in the Mid-Atlantic states, but gradually the English inheritance was pared down to but a few well-constructed options. By the second half of the 17th century, one- and two-room hall and chamber dwellings with gable-end chimneys became the most predominant form. Settlers completely rethought the arrangement of service rooms, consigning spaces such as the kitchen, pantry, and buttery to detached structures known as outhouses. Servants were moved out of the house into separate quarters, a process that was accelerated with the increasing importation of African slaves in the 1670s through the 1680s.
New service buildings, such as smokehouses, where butchered hog meat was left to dry, and wash houses first make their appearance in the Mid-Atlantic landscape by the beginning of the 18th century. From this architectural experimentation emerged one of the fundamental characteristics of Southern architecture, a farmstead composed of a series of small domestic and agricultural service buildings dispersed around a modest dwelling house by English standards, that is. So if the hard conditions of the early tobacco colonies illustrate the impediments to replication and the power of adaptation, the pull of the inheritance can be seen in the transformation of American architecture in the late colonial period, when stable architectural societies flourished up and down the eastern seaboard. Historians often define the maturation of colonial society in the 18th century as a process of anglization, the replication of behaviors, customs, and fashions of contemporary English society. This process has been described as refinement, and the architectural implications of such a process can be seen in every port town, merchant's house, and great planter's dwelling, in the goods, fittings, and social dynamics and ceremonies enacted by this aspiring class. The double-pile, two-story withhouse in Williamsburg has its counterparts in English provincial towns, where a familiar genteel society sets store by the same goods, rituals, and societal manners practiced by George Wythe and his family in the colonial capital of the third quarter of the 18th century. This is a familiar pattern recognized by historians of provincial English culture who examine the interaction between regional traditions and metropolitan influences. Yet even though goods such as paint, wallpaper, stone mantles, and hardware may have been British, fresh off a ship from Bristol, Liverpool, London, or even Glasgow, the process of replication is ground in the peculiar circumstances of colonial American culture, making it different from the standard study of metropolitan design precedents and the reception in provincial cities and remote corners of Britain. Recent historic scholarship has explored the interaction of component parts of the British imperial system. As Bernard Balin and Phil Morgan have suggested, instead of a single coherent outward thrust by the English, the process should be seen as vastly more complicated, much more double-ended, with the colonies playing as dynamic role as the met- metropolitans. Although the movement of ideas in the 17th and 18th centuries proceeded in an east-to-west direction, the transatlantic connection was imperfect. Distance certainly weakened the communication of ideas, and few, if any, English or continental ideas existed in their complete or orthodox form in colonial North America. Enormous differences in the environment and social conditions, combined with the vigor of local practices, to transform metropolitan ideas into something identifiably American, with at least five distinctive regional manifestations. New England, the Hudson Valley, the Delaware Valley, the Chesapeake, and the Caroline Lowcountry. 
At the heart of the study of early American architecture is the nature of regionalism. Although we tend to categorize the buildings of this period in such a manner, there are <coughs> other issues with, the organiza- with this type of organizational principle. Scholars have acknowledged the difficulty of defining the term or distinguishing the boundaries of these various regions or their temporal dimensions. Exactly where does the Delaware Valley end and the Chesapeake begin? Why do those boundaries shift over time? How and when do diverse ethnically associated building forms blend to establish a new regional tradition? And in terms of transatlantic patterns, in what manner does a region respond to metropolitan or academic fashion? Are some regions more receptive to outside influences than others? To classify architecture along regional lines requires comparisons and accentuates contrast over continualities. How do we set our standards of comparison and against what do we measure them? The national, the metropolitan, or the academic idea? What makes the finished treatment of the Anglican church built in Lancashire in the 1730s differ from that in the church erected in Lancaster County, Virginia, at the same time? The answers to such questions often depend on the precision of the focus of the nature of the categorization. All buildings erected in the late 17th and 18th centuries in these very different areas shared many similar features, though, but they are recognizably different as an ensemble. What elements, therefore, must coalesce to create a regional form, plan, materials, and details, or parts of these as a whole? So as noted earlier, uh, the architecture of early America was quite overwhelmingly wooden. Yet even within this uniformity, building (laughs) technology varied widely. The earth-fast clabbered carpentry of the mid-Atlantic houses certainly set them apart from the mainstream of British timber framing and its identifiable cousin cousin in New England. Architectural finishes, the small decorative elements, like European germs, seem to have traveled best across the oceans and continents. At the micro level, though, colonial American builders devised no new details and fashions, no new moldings, but used traditional forms that were indistinguishable from their English counterparts. The first English settlers in America shaped their buildings with English tools so that the hollow and round shadow moldings in the earliest surviving structures from the 17th century mirror English ones exactly. Later, native-born craftsmen who worked in the same classical vocabulary as their English cousins, using molding planes equipped with iron blades wrought in Sheffield or Birmingham, double architraves with Sima backbands and half-inch beads appear in 18th-century buildings in Williamsburg as well as in Westminster. It's like the latest fad moving around. Raised-paneled wainscoting with overlow or Sima moldings was quite ubiquitous, covering the walls of taverns, dwellings, public buildings, and churches. Wherever these craftsmen worked, OG-shaped bench legs can be found supporting jury boxes in the courtrooms at Shire Hall in Dorchester, Dorset, and Pews in Stafford County, Virginia.
Fluted balusters decorate the stairs of Merchant Miles Breton's house in Charleston, South Carolina, and the pulpit stairs at Christ Church, Lancaster County, Virginia. Twisted balusters appear in the pulpit stairs of the Presbyterian Meeting House in Bury St. Edmunds, Suffolk, and the Sabbatarian Baptist Meeting House in Newport, Rhode Island. They're all the same. These were the universal building blocks of the Georgian designed vocabulary found across the Anglo-American world. They provide a reassuring measure of familiarity for those who seek the common architectural bonds that are very important to us that unite Great Britain with her American colonies. But keep in mind, up close though, the architectural details are indistinguishable whether on the former or in the heartland, in the farmhouse or the townhouse in a city. So step back and survey them in a room, and the setting is quite recognizable, though they may be arranged in a different manner with a few new features. Perhaps they belong in a building in a neighboring country. Open the door and walk outside, and you are standing in a strange place beyond the pale. The materials and the relationship of the various parts of the whole and to the site combine to define a distinctive regional or even local setting. It's all a matter of your perspective and expectations at this point. So somewhere in the middle distance, early American architecture can be recognized, though. Those who work in this field are constantly shifting their focal range, searching for the architectural grammar as well as the details that derive from the English heritage, but constantly readjusting their perspectives to see just how profound local forces were in in shaping and building a new environment in America. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing off. Thanks for listening.